Section 31 of Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nemo and Eva Davis. Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by Mrs. Edgar Lucas. What the Moon Saw. It is very extraordinary, but when my feelings are most fervent and at their best, my tongue and my hands alike seem tied. I cannot reproduce my impressions, either in words or in painting, as I feel them burning within me. And yet I am an artist. My eye tells me so, and all who have seen my sketches and notes acknowledge the same. I am only a poor lad, and I live in one of the narrowest streets. But light is not wanting to me, for I live high up, and I have a fine view over the roof. For the first few days when I came to live in the town, it seemed very cramped and lonely. Instead of green woods and hills, I only had chimney pots on my horizon. I had not a single friend and there was not even the face of an acquaintance to greet me. One evening I was standing sadly by the window. I opened it and looked out, and there, how pleased I was, I saw a face I knew, a round, friendly face, my best friend at home. It was the moon, the dear old moon, unchanged and looking exactly the same as he used to look, when he peeped at me through the wallows in the marshes. I kissed my hand to him, and he shone straight into my room, and promised to look in at me every evening he was out. This promise he has faithfully kept, and it is only a pity that he stays so short a time. Every time he comes, he tells me something or another, which he has seen the night before. Now paint what I tell you, said he, and you will have a very fine picture book. I have done, as he said, for many evenings, and in my own way I could give a new rendering of the thousand and one nights, but that would be too many. Those I give here are not selected, but they come in the order in which I heard them. A highly gifted painter, a poet, or a musician might perhaps make more of them. What I have given here are only hasty sketches, with my own thoughts occasionally interspersed, for the moon did not come every night. There were some evenings when he was hidden by the clouds. First Evening Last evening, to give the moon's own words, as I was gliding through the clear atmosphere of India, and reflecting myself in the Ganges. I tried to pierce the thick groves of plantain trees, the leaves of which overlay each other as tightly as the horny plates on the back of the turtle. From out of the thicket came a Hindu maiden. She was as light as a gazelle and as beautiful as Eve. There was such an airy grace about her and yet such firmness of purpose in this daughter of India, I could read her intention in coming. The thorny creepers tore her sandals, 
but she stepped rapidly onwards. The deer, coming up from the river, where they had quenched their thirst, bounded shyly past her, for the girl held in her hand a burning lamp. I could see the blood coursing in her delicate fingers as she bent them round the flame to form a shelter for it. She approached the river and placed the lamp upon the face of the waters, and it floated away on the stream. The flame flickered and seemed as if it would go out, but still it burned, and the dark, sparkling eyes of the girl followed it with a longing glance from under their silken fringes. She knew that if the lamp burned as long as she could follow it with her eyes, her lover lived. But if it went out, he was dead. The lamp burnt and flickered, and her heart burnt and trembled. She sank upon her knees in prayer. By her side in the grass lay a venomous snake, but she heeded it not. She only thought of Brahma and her bridegroom. He lives, she rejoiced. And from the hills came the echo. He lives. Second Evening It was yesterday, the moon told me. I peeped down into a little court surrounded by houses. In it sat a hen with eleven chickens. A charming little girl was skipping about among them. The hen clucked and spread her wings in alarm over her brood. Then the little girl's father came out and scolded her, and I slipped away without thinking any more about it. But tonight, only a few minutes ago, I looked into the same court. At first it was quite quiet. Then the same little girl came out. She crept softly along to the chicken house, lifted the latch, and slipped in beside the hen and chickens. They cackled and flapped their wings, and the little girl ran after them. I saw it all quite plainly, for I peeped in by a hole in the wall. I was quite angry with the naughty child, and felt pleased when her father came and scolded her, more angrily than yesterday. He took her by the arm, and she bent back her head, showing her big blue eyes full of tears. "'What are you doing here?' asked he. She cried and said, "'I only wanted to get into the hen to kiss her, and to ask her to forgive me for frightening her yesterday, but I was afraid to tell you.' The father kissed the sweet innocent upon the forehead, and I kissed her on the eyes and lips. Third Evening In the narrow street close by, it is so narrow that I can only let my beams glide down for a few minutes, but in those minutes I see enough to know what the people are who move about there. I saw a woman sixteen years ago. She was a child. Away in the country she played in the old vicarage garden. The rose hedges were old and past flowering. They were running wild over the paths and sending up long shoots into the apple trees. Here and there grew one poor rose, not lovely as the queen of flowers should be, but the color was there and the fragrance 
the parson's little daughter seemed to me a far sweeter flower sitting upon her footstool under the wild hedge kissing the battered cheeks of her doll ten years later i saw her again i saw her in a brilliant ballroom she was the lovely bride of a rich merchant i was delighted with her happiness and i often sought her in these quiet evenings alas no one thought of my clear eye or my sharp glances my rose was also sending out wild shoots like the roses in the vicarage garden there are tragedies in everyday life too tonight i saw the last act there in the narrow street on a bed she lay at death's door the wicked landlord rough and cruel her only protector tore aside the coverlet get up he said your face is a sight dress yourself up paint your face and get some money or i will turn you into the street get up at once death is in my heart she said oh let me rest but he forced her to get up and painted her cheeks and put a wreath of roses in her hair then he seated her by the window with the light close by and left her i gazed upon her as she sat motionless with her hands in her lap the window flew back and one of the panes cracked but she did not move the curtain fluttered round her like a flame she was dead the dead woman at the open window preached a moral to me my rose from the vicarage garden fourth evening i went to a german play last night said the moon it was in a little town a stable had been turned into a theatre that is to say the stalls were left standing and furnished up to make boxes all the woodwork was covered up with bright paper a little iron chandelier hung from the low ceiling and so that it might disappear into the roof as in a big theatre at the sound of the prompter's bell an inverted tub was fixed above it ring-a-ting went the bell and the little chandelier made a spring of about a foot and then one knew that the play had begun a young prince and his consort who were travelling through the town were present at the performance the house was crammed only the place under the chandelier was left like a little crater not a creature sat there for the grease dropped drop drop i saw it all for it was so warm that all the loopholes had been open the lads and lasses outside were peeping in notwithstanding that the police inside kept threatening them with their sticks the noble pair sat in a couple of old armchairs close to the orchestra the burgomaster and his wife usually occupied these but on this occasion they were obliged to sit on the wooden benches just as if they had been ordinary citizens there you see there is rank above rank was the quiet remark of the good wives and this incident gave a special air of festivity to the entertainment the chandelier gave its little hops the crowd was wrapped over the knuckles and i yes the moon saw the whole entertainment
fifth evening yesterday said the moon i looked down upon the life of paris and my eye penetrated to some of the apartments in the louvre an old grandmother poorly clad belonging to the lower classes accompanied by some of the subordinate attendants entered the great empty throne room she wanted to see it she must see it it had cost her many small sacrifices and much persuasiveness before she had attained her wish she folded her thin hands and looked about her as reverently as if she were in a church it was here she said here and she approached the throne with its rich embroidered velvet hangings there she said there and she fell upon her knees and kissed the purple carpet i believe she wept it was not this very velvet said the attendant a smile playing round his mouth but it was here said the woman it looked the same the same he answered yet not the same the windows were smashed to atoms the doors torn off and there was blood upon the floors but still you may say that my grandson died upon the throne of france died repeated the old woman i don't think anything more was said they left the room soon after the twilight faded and my light grew stronger upon the rich velvet on the throne of france who do you think the old woman was i will tell you a story it was evening on the most brilliant day of victory in the july revolution when every house was a fortress every window an embrasure the populace stormed the tuileries even women and children fought among the combatants they pressed through the apartments of the palace a poor half-grown lad in rags fought bravely among the other insurgents he fell fatally wounded by bayonet thrusts and sank to the ground in the throne room itself and his bleeding form was laid upon the throne where his blood streamed over the imperial purple what a picture that was the noble room the struggling groups a torn banner upon the ground the tricolor floating from the bayonets and on the throne the poor dying boy with his pale transparent face and eyes turned towards heaven while his limbs were already stiffening in death his naked breast and torn clothing were half hidden by the purple velvet decked with the lilies of france it had been prophesied at his cradle that he should die on the throne of france the mother's heart had dreamt of a new napoleon my beams have kissed the wreath of immortelles on the lad's grave and this night they kissed the forehead of the old grandmother while she dreamt and saw the picture you may sketch here the poor boy upon the throne of france sixth evening i have been in upsala said the moon i looked down upon the great plain covered with coarse grass in the barren fields i looked at myself in the waters of the fieris river while the steamers frightened the fishes in among the rushes the clouds chased each other below me and threw their shadows on to odin's thor's 
in Freya's graves, as they are called. Names have been cut all over the mounds in the short turf. There is no monument here where travelers can have their names carved, nor rock walls where they may be painted. So the visitors have had the turf cut away, and their names stand out in the bare earth. There is a perfect network of these spread all over the mounds, a form of immortality which only lasts till the fresh grass grows. A man was standing there, a poet. He emptied the mead horn of its broad silver rim and whispered a name, telling the wind not to betray it. But I heard it and knew it. A count's coronet sparkles over it, and therefore he did not speak it aloud. I smiled. A poet's crown sparkles over his. Eleonora d'Est's nobility gains luster from Tasso's name. I knew, too, where this rose of beauty blooms. Having said this, the moon was hidden by a cloud. May no clouds come between the poet and his rose. Seventh Evening Along the shore stretches a great forest of oak and beech. Sweet and fragrant is its scent. It is visited every year by hundreds of nightingales. The sea is close by, the ever-changing sea, and the broad high road separates the two. One carriage after another rolls by. I do not follow them. My eye rather rests on one particular spot. It is a tumulus or barrel. Brambles and wild sloes grow among its stones. Here is real poetry in nature. How do you think people in general interpret it? I will tell you what I heard only last night. First, two rich farmers drove by. Those are some fine trees, said one. There are ten loads of wood in each, answered the other. This will be a hard winter, and last winter we got fourteen dollars a cord. And they were gone. This is a bad bit of road, said the next man who drove along. It's those cursed trees, answered his companion. You don't get a current of air, you only have the breeze from the sea. And then they rolled by. Next, the diligence came along. The passengers were all asleep at the prettiest part of the road. The driver blew his horn. He only thought, how well I am blowing it, and it sounds well here. I wonder what they think of it. And then the diligence, too, was gone. The next to pass were two lads on horseback. Here we have youth and champagne in the blood, I thought. And indeed, they looked with a smile at the moss-grown hill and the dark thicket. Shouldn't I like a walk here with the miller's Christine, said one, and then they rushed on. The flower scented the air, and every breeze was hushed. It looked as if the sea was a part of the heavens outspread over a deep valley. A carriage drove by in which were six travelers. Four of them were asleep. The fifth was thinking of his new summer coat and whether it became him. The sixth leant forward and asked the driver if there was anything remarkable about that heap of stones. No, answered the man, it's only a heap of stones, but those trees are remarkable. Tell me about them. 
well they are very remarkable you see sir in winter when the snow lies deep and every place looks alike these trees are a landmark to me and i know i must keep close to them so as not to drive into the sea in that way you see they are remarkable and he drove on now an artist came along and his eyes sparkled he did not say a word but he whistled and the nightingale sang the one louder than the other hold your tongues he cried and took out his notebook and began noting down the colors in the most methodical manner blue lilac dark brown it will make a splendid picture he saw it as a mirror reflects a scene and in the meantime he whistled a march by rossini the last to come by was a poor girl she rested a moment by the barrow and put down her burden she turned her pale pretty face towards the wood and her eyes shone when she looked upwards to the sky over the sea she folded her hands and i think she whispered a prayer she did not herself understand the feelings which penetrated her but i know that in years to come this night will often recur to her with all the lovely scene around her it will be much more beautiful and truer to nature in her memory than the painter's picture will be with his exact colouring noted down in a book my beams followed her till the dawn kissed her forehead eighth evening there were heavy clouds in the sky and the moon did not appear at all i was doubly lonely in my little room looking up into the sky where the moon ought to have been my thoughts wandered up to the kind friend who had told me stories every evening and shown me pictures what had he not experienced he had sailed over the angry waters of the flood and looked down upon the ark as he now did upon me bringing consolation to the new world which was to arise when the children of israel stood weeping by the waters of babylon he peeped sadly through the willows where the harps were hung when romeo climbed onto the balcony and a young love's kiss flew like a cherub's thought from earth to heaven the round moon was hidden behind the dark cypresses in the transparent air he saw the hero at st helena where he stood on the rock gazing out over the illimitable ocean while great thoughts stirred his breast nay what could not the moon tell us the life of the world is a story to him tonight i do not see you old friend and i have no picture to draw in remembrance of your visit but as i looked dreamily up at the clouds there appeared one beam from the moon but it was soon gone the black cloud swept over it still it was a greeting a friendly evening greeting to me from the moon ninth evening the air was clear again several evenings had passed while the moon was in its first quarter then i got a new idea for a sketch hear what the moon told me i have followed the polar birds and the swimming whales to the east coast of greenland gaunt ice-covered rocks and dark clouds overhung a valley 
where willows and bilberry bushes stood in thick bloom and the scented lignus diffused its fragrance my light was dim and my crescent pale as the leaf of the water-lily which has been floating for weeks upon the waters after being torn away from its stem the corona of the northern lights burned with a fierce light the rays spread out from its wide circle over the heavens like whirling columns of fire playing in green and red light the inhabitants were assembled for dancing and merry-making but they had no wonder to bestow on the glorious sight so accustomed to it were they let the souls of the dead play at ball with the walrus's head as much as they like they thought according to their superstitions their attention was entirely centred on the dancing and singing a greenlander without his fur coat stood in the middle of the circle with a small drum in his hand on which he played and at the same time sang a song in praise of seal hunting the chorus answered him with ya ya ah and at the same time hopped round the circle in their white fur coats looking like polar bears they wagged their heads and rolled their eyes in the wildest way then they held a mock court of justice the litigant stepped forward and the plaintiff rehearsed his opponent's faults all in a bold and mocking manner the rest meanwhile dancing to the music of the drum the defendant replied in the same spirit and the assemblage laughingly gave their judgment thunders resounded from the mountains when portions of the ice-field slipped away and great masses broke off shivering into dust it was a typical greenland summer night a hundred paces away under a tent of skins lay a sick man life was still coursing through his veins yet he was to die he knew it himself and those standing round him knew it too so much so that his wife was already sewing up the skin robe around him so as not to have to touch the dead man later she asked him will you be buried on the fells in the hard snow or would you rather be sunk in the sea in the sea he whispered and nodded with a sad smile yes the sea is a cosy summer tent said the woman thousands of seals sport about in it and the walrus will sleep at your feet the chase is certain and plenty of it the children howled and tore away the tightened skin from the window so that the dying man might be borne down to the sea the swelling ocean which gave him food for life and now in death a resting place his headstone was the floating iceberg which changes from day to day seals slumber on the ice and the albatross spreads its great wings above it tenth evening i knew an old maid said the moon she used to wear a yellow satin pelisse in winter it was always new and she never varied the fashion of it every summer she used to wear the same straw hat and i believe a bluish-gray dress she only used to go and see one old friend who lived across the street but for the last few years she did not go 
for her friend was dead. My old friend bustled about in her loneliness by her window, which was always full of beautiful flowers in summer, and in the winter she grew splendid mustard and cress on a piece of felt. For the last few months she has not appeared at the window, but I knew that she still lived, for I had not seen her take the great journey about which she and her friend talked so much. Yes, she used to say, when my time comes to die, I shall travel much further than I have ever done in my whole life. Our family burial place is twenty miles from here, and I am to be taken there for my last sleep with the rest of my family. Last night, a van stopped at the door and a coffin was carried out, so I knew that she was dead. They put straw round the coffin and drove off. In it slept the quiet old maid, who for the last few years had not been outside the house. The van rattled quickly out of the town, as if bent on a pleasure trip. They went faster still when they reached the high road. The driver looked over his shoulder every now and then. I believe he was half afraid of seeing the old lady sitting there, on the top of the coffin, in her yellow pelisse. Then he whipped up the horses mercilessly and held them in so tightly that they foamed at the mouth. A hare darted across the road, and they got beyond the man's control. The quiet old maid, who, year in, year out, had moved so slowly in her daily round, now that she was dead, was being hurried at a headlong pace over stock and stone along the road. The coffin, which was wrapped in mats, slipped off the van and fell on to the road, while driver, horses, and van rushed away in their wild flight. A little lark flew up from the field and burst into its morning song, right over the coffin. It perched on it and pecked at the matting, as if to tear the shell asunder. Then it rose gaily warbling into the air, and I drew back behind the rosy clouds of dawn. Eleventh Evening It was a bridal feast, said the moon. Songs were sung, toasts were drunk, everything was gay and festive. The guests went away. It was past midnight. The mothers kissed the bride and the bridegroom. Then I saw them alone, but the curtains were almost closely drawn. The comfortable room was lit up by a lamp. Thank goodness they are all gone, said he, kissing her hands and her lips. She smiled and wept and leant her head upon his breast, trembling like the lotus flower upon the flowing waters. They talked together in tender, glowing words. Sleep sweetly, he exclaimed, and she drew aside the window curtain. How beautifully the moon is shining, she said. See how still and clear it is. Then she put out the lamp, and the cozy room was dark, except for my beams, which shone as brightly as his eyes. O oh, womanhood, kiss thou the poet's lyre, when he sings of the mysteries of life. Twelfth Evening I will give you a picture of Pompeii, said the moon. I was in the outskirts of the town, 
in the street of tombs as it is called where the beautiful monuments stand it is the place where once joyous youths crowned with roses danced with the fair sisters of lais now the stillness of death reigns german soldiers in the neapolitan pay keep guard and play at cards and dice a crowd of strangers from the other side of the mountains came into the town with guides they wanted to see this city risen from the grave under my full beams i showed them the chariot tracks in the streets paved with slabs of lava i showed them the names on the doors and the signboards still hanging in the small courtyards they saw the basins of the fountains decorated with shells but no stream of water played and no songs resounded from the richly painted chambers where the metal dog guarded the doors it was indeed a city of the dead only vesuvius thundered forth its everlasting hymn the several verses of which are called by man a new eruption we went to the temple of venus built of dazzling white marble with its high altar in front of the broad steps and the weeping willow shooting up among the pillars the air was blue and transparent and in the background stood vesuvius inky black with its column of fire like the stem of a pine tree in the darkness the cloud of smoke looked like the crown of the tree only it was blood red illuminated by the internal flames a songstress was among the company a great and noted one i have seen the homage paid to her in the various capitals of europe when they reached the tragic theatre they all sat down on the stone steps of the amphitheatre they filled up a little corner of it as in centuries gone by the stage still stood with its walled side scenes and two arches in the background through which one sees the same decoration as was seen then nature herself the hills between amalfi and sorrento for a joke the singer mounted the stage and sang for the place inspired her i thought of the wild arab horse when it neighs tosses its mane and tears away her song was so light and yet so assured i also thought of the suffering mother beneath the cross of golgotha who was so full of deep feeling and pain roundabout echoed just as it had done a thousand years ago the sound of applause and delight happy gifted creature they all cried three minutes later the stage was empty and not a sound was to be heard the company departed but the ruins stood unchanged as they will stand for centuries and no one will know of the momentary burst of applause the notes of the beautiful songstress and her smiles they are past and gone even to me they are but a vanished memory thirteenth evening i peeped through the windows of an editor's office said the moon it was somewhere in germany it was well furnished there were many books and a perfect chaos of papers several young men were present and the editor stood by the desk two small books both by young authors were to be reviewed this one has been sent to me he said i have not read it yet but it is nicely got up 
what do you say about the contents oh said one who was himself a poet it is pretty good a little drawn out perhaps but he's a young man still the verses might be better but the thoughts are sound if a little commonplace what are you to say you can't always think of something new you will be quite safe in praising him although i don't suppose he will ever be a great poet he is well read a first-rate oriental scholar and he has judgment it was he who wrote that nice article on my reflections on domestic life one must be kind to a young man but he must be a regular ass said another man in the room nothing is worse in poetry than mediocrity and he will never rise above it poor fellow said a third and his aunt is so delighted with him it is she mr editor who found so many subscribers to your last translation oh the good woman well i have reviewed the book quite briefly unmistakable talent a welcome offering a flower in the garden of poetry well got up and so on but the other book i suppose the author wants me to buy it i hear it is being praised he has genius don't you think so oh they all harp upon that said the poet but he talks rather wildly and the punctuation is most peculiar it would do him good to pull him to pieces a bit and enrage him or he will think too highly of himself but that would be rather unreasonable cried another don't let us carp at his small faults rather let us rejoice over his good points and he has many he beats all the others heaven preserve us if he is such a genius he will be able to stand some rough handling there are plenty of people to praise him in private don't let us make him mad unmistakable talent wrote the editor with the usual want of care that he can write incorrect verses may be seen on page twenty five where there are two false quantities a study of the ancients is recommended and so on i went away said the moon and peeped through the window into the aunt's room where the cherished poet sat the tame one he was worshipped by all the guests and quite happy i sought the other poet the wild one he was also at a large party in the house of one of his admirers where they were talking of the other poet's book i mean to read yours too said mecenas but you know i never tell you anything but what i think and to tell the truth i do not expect great things of you you are too wild and too fantastic but i acknowledge that as a man you are very respectable a young girl sat in the corner and she read in a book these words let stifled genius lie below while you on dullness praise bestow so it has been from ages past and i will be while earth doth last fourteenth evening the moon said to me there are two cottages by the roadside in the wood the doors are low and the windows crooked but the buckthorn and the berberus cluster round them the roofs are overgrown with moss yellow flowers and house leek there are only cabbages and potatoes in the little garden but near the fence is a flowering elder bush and beneath it sat a little girl her brown eyes were fixed upon the old oak between the cottages it had a great gnarled trunk and the crown had been sawn off and the stork had built his nest on the top of the trunk 
He was standing there now, clattering his beak. A little boy came out and placed himself beside the girl. They were brother and sister. What are you looking at? he asked. I am looking at the stork, she said. The woman next door has told me that he is going to bring us a little brother or sister tonight, and I am watching to see them come. The stork won't bring one, said the boy. Our neighbor told me the same thing, but she laughed when she said it, and I asked if she dared swear by the name of God, and she dared not. So I know very well that all that nonsense about the stork is just something they make up for us children. Where will the little baby come from, then, asked the girl. Our Lord will bring it, said the boy. God has it under his mantle, but nobody can see God, and so we shall not see him bring it. Just then a gust of wind rustled through the leaves of the elder bush, and the children clasped their hands and looked at each other. It must be God sending the baby. They took hold of each other's hands. The cottage door opened, and a woman appeared. Come in now, she said. Come in, and see what the stork has brought. It is a little brother. The children nodded. They knew well enough he had come. Fifteenth Evening I was passing over the Limburg Heath, said the moon, and I saw a lonely hut by the wayside. Some leafless trees grew round it on one of which a nightingale was singing. It had lost its way. I knew that it must die of the cold, and that it was its swan song I heard. At daybreak a caravan came along, of emigrant peasants on their way to Bremen or Hamburg to take the ship for America, where good fortune, the fortune of their dreams, was awaiting them. The women were carrying the babies, and the bigger children skipped along beside them. A wretched horse drew a van on which there were a few miserable articles of furniture. A cold wind blew, and a little girl clung closer to her mother, who looked up at my waning disc and thought what bitter need they had endured at home, and of the heavy taxes which could not be paid. Her thoughts were those of the whole caravan, so the red dawn shone upon them, like a glimmer from that sun of fortune which was about to arise. They heard the song of the dying nightingale, and to them it was no false prophet, but rather a harbinger of good fortune. The wind whistled sharply, and they did not understand its song. Sail on securely over the ocean. You have given all that you possessed in return for the journey. Poor and helpless you will land upon the shores of your Canaan. You must sell yourself, your wife, and your children, but you shall not suffer long. The goddess of death lurks behind the broad, fragrant leaves. Her kiss of welcome will breathe pestilential fever into your blood. Sail on, sail on over the surging waters. But the travelers listened happily to the song of the nightingale for it promised them good fortune. Daylight shone through the floating clouds, and peasants were wending their way over the heath to church. The women in their black dresses, and with white kerchiefs round their heads, looked as if they might have stepped down out of the old pictures in the church. Round about, 
there was only the great dead plain covered with brown withered heather and the white sand hills beyond the women held their prayer books in their hands and wandered on toward the church ah pray pray for those whose steps are leading them to the grave beyond the rolling waters sixteenth evening i know a punchinello said the moon the public shout directly they see him each of his movements is so comic that the whole house roars when he appears his personality makes them laugh not his art even when he was little playing about with the other boys he was already a punchinello nature had made him one she had given him a hump on his back and one on his chest but the inner man the soul ah that was richly endowed no one had deeper feelings or greater elasticity of mind than he the theatre was his ideal world if he had been slender and well made he would have been the first tragedian on any stage the great and the heroic filled his soul and yet he had to be a punchinello even his pain and his melancholy increased the comic dryness of his sharply cut features and called forth laughter from the multitudes who applauded their favorite the pretty columbine was kind and friendly but she preferred marrying the harlequin it would have been far too comic in real life if beauty and the beast had joined hands when punchinella was in low spirits she was the only person who could make him smile nay even laugh outright at first she would be melancholy too then gay and at last full of fun i know what is the matter with you well enough said she you are in love i in love he exclaimed we should be a nice pair how the public would applaud us you are in love she repeated you are in love with me that might very well be said when one knew there was no question of love punchinella laughed and bounded into the air all his melancholy was gone yet she had spoken the truth he loved her worshipped her as he worshipped all that was highest and best in art at her wedding he was the merriest person there but at night he wept bitter tears had the public seen his distorted face they would have indeed have applauded quite lately columbine had died and on the day of her burial harlequin had a holiday was he not a sorrowing widower the manager was obliged to produce something more than usual merry so that the public should not miss pretty columbine therefore punchinello had to be doubly lively he danced and bounded with despair in his heart and he was more applauded than ever bravo bravissimo punchinello was called forward he was indeed above all price last night after the performance the little hunchback wandered out of the town to the lonely churchyard the wreaths were already withering on columbine's grave he sat down upon it it would have made a touching picture with his hand under his chin his eyes turned towards me he was like a monument 
a punchinello on a grave characteristic and comical if the public had seen their favorite how they would have shouted bravo bravissimo punchinello end of section thirty one